0: Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever.
1: So don't judge me when I say this, but my favorite movie genre are romantic comedies, uh, or just like anything romantic. And my wife recently uh, got me on this uh, uh, pretty fairly new K-drama recently. Uh, It's pretty good, it's not like the best, but it's pretty good. But one of the things that I noticed about um, almost every single K-drama I've seen is that there's always two characters that are seemingly like very opposite but somehow, uh, life brings them together. And, and they don't like each other at first, but inevitably, there's always this like one scene that bonds them together, and it's the same scene in every K-drama. It's the scene where the girl loses her balance and her arms are flailing in slow motion, and somehow, she lands right in the arms of the guy and they look at each other, and there's that moment where they're like connected to one another. And, and I love that. I love those moments, because it like just <laughs> yanks on your heartstrings. But when you watch enough of this stuff, there's a tendency to think of love, romance, dating, being engaged, marriage, in a certain kind of way, uh, to a certain extent in a distorted way. Uh, I'll never forget this, but Pastor Gene's very first sermon he ever preached in seminary, it was in our preaching class, uh, over 20 years ago, was called, What Your K-Dramas Are Not Telling You About Love. And he's right. Uh, when we watch a lot of Hollywood dramas and shows and K-Dramas, we have a very distorted picture of what love can look like. And on the one hand, dating and being in love and being married are beautiful things. But at times, it can be a very ugly thing too, which you also have to know. In fact, I would go as far as to say there is no other human relationship. Not even the relationship you have with mom and dad or you have with your brothers and sisters, there is no other human relationship that can bring the darkest side out of you like marriage. Which is why oftentimes when you face difficulties in marriage, it not only brings you into a confrontation with your spouse, but when you're going through these difficult times, it can oftentimes bring you into a confrontation with yourself. You didn't even know you had this kind of darkness uh, inside of you. And so today, I want to talk about healing the hurt in our marriages. And the way that we do that is not by having a me-centered mindset, but by having a you-centered mindset, And the reason why I wanna talk about healing the hurt in our marriages is for three reasons. Number one, we marry, I mean, Pastor David married someone yesterday. We marry probably close to 15 people a year. Uh, I'm doing another wedding next month. And so there are a lot of people that are getting married in our church and we want your marriages not to just barely survive, but we really do want it to thrive. One A, so not the second point, but one A to that, is there are also a lot of you that are married. And it is isn't lost sight of me that not all of our marriages are in the best condition right now. I know that. And what we want for your hurting marriages is also to be in a place where you, you experience healing, a lot more healing than hurting, okay? Second reason why I want to talk about this is it isn't lost sight of me either that most of our church is single. Okay, so you might be thinking, well, this is great for those that are married, but this is completely irrelevant for me. And I would say not so fast, because I do know that a lot of you do want to get married one day, and preparation for marriage does not begin when you're engaged or when you're married. Preparation for marriage begins today. You bring your whole self into marriage. You bring your past, all the baggage there is, you bring your present and you bring your future self into your marriage. You bring your family of origin into your marriage. You bring all your past experiences into your marriage. Preparation for marriage begins today, not later on when you do get married. And I also want you to, as you think about marriage, not to have a distorted view of marriage, but to have a proper expectation of what marriage is like. Oftentimes we think singleness is hell, Uh, marriage is heaven. But I can tell you that sometimes the loneliness that you experience as a single pales in comparison to to the loneliness that sometimes married couples experience. It pales in comparison to the broken marriages and the loneliness that you can feel when you're married because you're not supposed to feel lonely when you're married. So why am I feeling so lonely and isolated? So I want you to have a proper perspective on what marriage is like. It's not easy. Thirdly, the reason why I want to talk about this is because we've been doing a series on Genesis the past few months, actually. And we're now shifting from Noah to Abraham. And so in God's providence, he has led us up to this point. And so that's also why we're looking at uh, marriage. And when you think about the Bible, particularly if you've never read it before, I want you to think about the Bible like a glass house, like John Wick's house. Okay, When you think about a glass house, you can see everything, all the characters inside that house. The Bible, in many ways, is like a glass house, and we can see into the lives of the characters in this class house. And today we're going to see into the lives and the marriage specifically of Abram and Sarai. And sorry if I butcher their names because later on their names do change to Abraham and Sarah. So I might go back and forth on this, but right now they're Abram and Sarai and we get a sneak peek of what their broken marriage looks like. So take a look with me at verse 10 where it says this. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Now, over the past nine years of our church's history, we've had the privilege of actually having a good amount of North Korean defectors and refugees who have become friends of our church. And With almost every testimony that I hear from North Koreans, it it almost comes in tandem with some kind of story about famine in North Korea, severe famine. Abram and Sarai are experiencing not just famine, but a severe famine. The kind of famine where your life is at stake. This is a life or death situation, and so they go down to Egypt. Now, when we are married to another person, right, there are times where we also experience a lot of external hardships. Maybe it's not at the level of a famine where it's life or death, but at the same time, I don't wanna minimize what we experience in our marriages. So sometimes those circumstances are things like having two young kids under the age of four You haven't slept in like four years. I haven't slept in eight years. And so you feel that external pressure of being cranky and tired and sleepy and constantly sleeping with one eye open. You got nothing left. Sometimes those external pressures are things like your in-laws, Sometimes those external circumstances are things like financial hardship. Sometimes it's space issues, living in New York City, trying to raise a family. Sometimes it's health issues. There are all sorts of issues and external circumstances that we face in our marriages, but the key is not to let those external circumstances Guide our marriages, lead our marriages in the wrong direction. Instead, we want to lead these external circumstances in the right direction and not in the wrong direction. And having an awareness of what these circumstances are doing to us is half the battle. For Abram and Sarah, they were letting this famine lead their marriage in the wrong direction, not the right. And so we read in verse 11 to 13, as he was about, that is Abram, about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. So right away, we see that Abram's mindset with his marriage was not a you-centered marriage, but it was a me-centered marriage. And a part of the reason why I think, scholars think, Abram was thinking this way is because there was a severe famine. The Egyptians are not gonna just let all these refugees come into their land, live here, eat their food without doing some kind of payment doing some kind of work, paying some kind of price. And Abram thought that that price could be hefty. It could even be the the price of my own life, especially considering how beautiful my wife is. They could just take her and kill me. And so he devises this plan where he says, tell everyone you're my sister. That way, my life will be spared and I will be treated well. He's not thinking about Sarai so much as he is thinking about himself. And I think part of the reason why we have so much hurt in our marriages oftentimes is because we have a me-centered mindset instead of a you-centered mindset. The North African theologian Augustine uh, once said that our hearts are like incurvates in se, that's just fancy Latin for a curved in on ourselves, and so our hearts basically look like jumbo shrimp, it's curved in on ourselves, so we're constantly navel gazing, only thinking about ourselves instead of thinking first about our spouse. But what I want you to know is that 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 heart posture can straighten up and that you actually can have a you-centered marriage instead of a me-centered marriage. You know how I know that? A lot of you have kids. What is the first thing that you think about when you have babies when you wake up? Do you think about yourself? Oh, you think about your kids. I remember when my girls were first born, first thing that I thought about, especially with the first, because you don't know what you're doing exactly. First thing, I I would run up to her crib and put my ear next to her nostril to see if she was breathing. It's the first thing I did every morning. I didn't think about myself or brushing my teeth or whatever. I was always thinking about them. Now, you might say, well, they're babies. They're needy. That's why we have to think about them first. My my spouse isn't needy. Well, talk to my wife. She will be the first (laughs) to tell you how needy I I am. You know how I know that? In 1992, Dr. Gary Chapman, also a pastor, wrote a very influential book called The Five Love Languages. This book has sold over 20 million copies. It is forever, every single year, on uh, a New York Times bestseller. And in his book, The Five Love Languages, there's a a chart up here. He talks about five things. He talks about acts of service, quality time, words of affirmation, receiving gifts, physical touch. These are all ways that we express our love, but these are also ways that we experience love, okay? So as you think about these five things, so acts of service are like, you know, doing the dishes, like serving your spouse, um, not, you know, making them do all the work, but pitching in, quality time, right? spending time with them more than on your phone, quality time, words of affirmation, acknowledging them, affirming them, not just critiquing them, criticizing them all the time, receiving gifts, uh, physical touch. Uh, And that's not just sex, but it's holding hands, it's hugging, all that stuff. Uh, And so those are the five love languages. And so as you think about your spouse, what do you think their love language is? Now, Hannah has the burden of being married to someone that has all five uh, that I need every single day. But as you think about your spouse, what is her love language? And the reason why this is so important is because try talking to another person that doesn't speak English. Are you gonna be able to communicate with them? no because you don't share a you don't know their language and so here this is where it's really important to know what your spouse's language is and to express that love to them so that they feel loved not not the way that you feel loved but the way that they feel loved and once you know what that love language is double down on that every single day if you brush your teeth once do you think you're going to have fresh breath for the rest of your life Of course not, why would it be any different with love? You don't just propose to them once and expect them to feel love for the rest of their lives. This is a daily activity that you and I are called to do. And by the way, it's not just with our spouse, but it's with God. We don't just sing once and worship him on Sunday and then ignore him for the rest of the week. How do you think he's going to experience your love? This is a daily activity, just like brushing your teeth, that we are called to do for one another. So I'll give you a practical example. So one of the things I know Hannah loves are foot massages. And so even though we have a Theragun, it's like collecting dust. And so what she does is she sends me like YouTube videos on how to give her better foot massages. (laughs) So I'm gonna have arthritis by the time I'm 50. Um, But I know that when I do this for her, she feels loved. And she always falls asleep to it, and, 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 and it's not even for like five minutes, I'm going like 30 minutes, right? And, and so I'm like, so I basically give her a foot massage and just pray to God. <laughs> like, this used to be every night, now it's like once, once a week because we're so tired, but, but I know that that's how she experiences love, right? And and I'm tired too, and my fingers are like hurting, but this is a way of expressing uh, love to her. The problem with Abram was that he was concerned more about his own love languages than he was concerned about Sarai's. And so this is where husbands, uh, it's not just enough to love our wives more, but it's equally important, if not more important, to love ourselves less. Abram loved himself more than his wife, which is why he mortgaged her off. And wives, I would say, it's not enough just to love your husbands more, but you also have to love yourself less. And this is where Abram failed. He was not a good husband because he, pri- he had a me-centered view of marriage. You know, the, you know what's fa- so fascinating about the word husband is that it comes from two words, house band, rubber band. What does a rubber band do? It, it tightens something. It secures something. It encircles something. And he was not being a good house band for Sarai. And so since we're talking about a husband here, Husband, how, husbands, how, how good of a house band have you been recently? Or does your wife feel like she is on her own on a desert island by herself? What would your spouse say about what you're doing right now? And yet at the same time, I do want to show all of us grace. I want to show Abram and Sarai grace because to put this story into context, when I think about their marriage, and I don't know for sure, but it's very possible by this point in their life, they have been married for like 50 or 60 years by this point. Now, when you're dating, engaged, and newly married, you're still on your best behavior. But give it some time. And that best behavior, it quickly diminishes, and your true self now comes out, okay? Okay? And all of a sudden, because you're a lot more comfortable now, you're not on your best behavior, and now you're a little bit more curt with your words. You're a little bit more impatient. You might not roll your eyes, but you're, you're kind of doing it inside. You become a little bit more like distant, and you kind of want your spouse to feel that distance as a form of punishment to them. Okay? We get a little bit more bitter uh, faster, And it is during these times where you fall in and out of love, you have to remember that it's not just your love that sustains your marriage, but it's also your vows that sustain your marriage. Now, this is so antithetical to the sexual revolution where it is a me-centered approach, a consumer-minded approach commodity-driven approach where how can I get my needs met? But when we think about what a vow is, it's not just thinking about what we're gaining out of it, but it's a promise that we are making to the other person. You know what a vow is? Have you ever gone bowling with kids or people that don't know how to bowl, and they put these bumpers in the gutters so that the ball doesn't go to the left or to the right? Your vows are like these bumpers when you go bowling, and it prevents your marriage, this ball, from guttering. So it's not just your love that sustains your vows, uh, your marriage. It's your vows that sustain your marriage as well. And so take a look with me at verse 14 and 16 where it says, When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. So whenever I officiate a a wedding, I try to remind the couple of their vows, the vows that they are about to make, Because when they say I do, they say I do to some pretty audacious things like in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, in plenty and in want. And so I usually ask the couple, well, what if your marriage is characterized not by health, but more by sickness? You going to call it quits? What if your marriage is characterized more by sorrow? and not joy? You're going to call it quits? What if it's characterized by wanting more out of life, more well-stown furniture, better cars, bigger apartments, but, and you don't have plenty, but you just want, 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 and your spouse is not providing for you? Then what are you going to do? Are you going to balance? And inevitably, like whenever people experience the other side of their valves, they say things like, well, I didn't expect that it was going to be this way. And a part of that is because we have such a distorted picture again of what marriage can oftentimes be like. But when you make these vows to your spouse, these are not 24 hour vows, these are not present vows but these are future oriented vows that you are making through thick and through thin now think about what abram and Sarai are going through they are experiencing not just a famine but a severe famine they are probably experiencing sickness cuz they haven't eaten they are probably experiencing sorrow instead of joy cuz they're hungry and they're traveling and nomadic and they're experiencing wanting stuff food and water instead of having plenty of things in their life but instead of remembering the vows that he made to his wife, Sarai. Abram mortgages his wife off so that he could have joy, so he could have health, so he could have plenty in life. Now, anyone can do these things when things are going well, but it's a lot harder to remember your vows uh, when things are going rough. But we have to remember that the vows that we make have to mean something. There are covenants and promises that we are making to another person. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which I recommend to you, writes this. In any relationship, there will be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant, a commitment, a promise of future love. So what do you do? You do the acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender, sympathetic, and eager to please, but in your actions, you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, and helpful. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they will become less frequent and deep and you will become more constant in your feelings. This is what can happen if you decide to love. Love is not just a noun, it's a verb, okay? Now, if you wait to feel lovingly before you act lovingly, you might never act lovingly. But if you act lovingly, even though you don't feel lovingly, A lot of the times those feelings come behind those actions because love is not just a noun, it's a verb. It is something that we are called to do. But Abram forgot his vows that he made to Sarai, but he not only forgot the vows that he made to his wife, he forgot the vows that God also made to him. So just earlier, before they go down to to Egypt, God makes a covenant, a vow with Abram, and he writes this. In Genesis 12, 1 to 2, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Here, God promises Abram two things, land, and he promises him a big family tree. And up to this point, they are barren but he promises him a long genealogy. And what's really fascinating is if you were here last week as we talked about the Tower of Babel, where all the people are like, I will make a name for myself. Look at what God says to Abram. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. But Abram not only forgot the vows he made to his wife, he forgot the vows that God had made to him. And you know why this is so important? The reason why Abram forgot the promise that God made to him was because he was not spiritually in a healthy place. That's why he forgot. In every single marriage counseling that I do, every single one, without exception, 100% of the time, whenever a couple is experiencing conflict horizontally, And they're unhealthy horizontally, 100% of the time, it's because they're unhealthy vertically as well. How's your prayer life? Maybe before we eat. You're reading the word. Not really. Have you been out to church? Well, we just had a kid, and you know, it's tough. And so there's a lack of prioritizing your vertical relationship with God. And when that happens, what happens? You're spiritually bankrupt. How in the world are you going to display the fruits of your spirit to your wife or your husband? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, not keeping a record of wrongs. How in the world are you going to be able to display the fruit of the spirit when you are operating from a mindset of spiritual scarcity? You're spiritually bankrupt. And instead, what has filled this account in your heart then is not good fruit, but rotten fruit. So this is why we're curt, and we're not patient, we're impatient. This is when we're not kind, but we're actually mean with our words. This is when we shouldn't keep a record of wrongs, but we do the one thing you should never do in a marriage, scorekeeping. It's the worst thing that we can do. But when we're not in a healthy place vertically with God, of course we're operating from a spirit where we are deficit with the fruits of the spirit. And so the formula is actually pretty simple. We have to get healthy vertically with God in order to be healthy horizontally with our spouses. I have never met a couple where they're healthy this way, but unhealthy this way. Never met a couple like that. If they're unhealthy this way, they are always unhealthy vertically as well. And so my question to you is, are you willing to prioritize even more than work are you willing to prioritize your spiritual health with God? Because you know what, the success of a marriage is not just contingent on finding the right person, but the success of your marriage is also being the right person for your spouse as well. Right now, as you think about your own marriages, what kind of story are they telling to the outside world? Because whether we know it or not, our lives are always communicating a story to the outside world. And as followers of Jesus, our marriages with our husbands and spouses are to reflect, our earthly marriages are called to reflect our heavenly marriage, our union and intimacy with God. But what kind of story is your marriage telling? Look at the story that their lives are telling to Pharaoh in verse 17 and 19 where it says this. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram in, and he said, what what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Now, what's so interesting here is that Pharaoh is is not a Christian. (laughs) And he's looking at this glass window of Abram and Sarai's marriage. And he's like, what are you doing? He's looking at their dysfunctionality and the story that their marriage is telling. And he, the person that does not believe in God, is criticizing the marriage between Abram and Sarai. What kind of story are your marriages telling right now? What kind of condition are they in? And if you're here and you're thinking, it's not good. Like, we are not in a good place. I'm trying and I don't know what to do. We've, I don't know what to do. And you might feel frustrated and alone. And I want you to know if that is how you feel, it is okay. Because nothing is beyond redemption. Nothing, nothing is beyond grace. Nothing is beyond rescue. We do believe in a miraculous God. A great God. And last I checked, God himself is in the longest, most dysfunctional, adulterous marriage in history. Because he is married to you and to me. Over and over again, whether it's stories like Hosea and Gomer, where he marries a prostitute, or the prophet Isaiah calls us harlots or whores, Over and over again, Scripture portrays us as the unfaithful bride. Well, we are not the kind of spouses that we ought to be by God the Father. But what does he do? He leans into the covenant that he made, actually with Abram, and the vows that he made to us. And he is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. And whereas Abram sacrificed his wife to spare his own, what do we read in Romans 8.32? He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Jesus willingly sacrificed himself, not because he had a me-centered view of this marriage, but he had a you-centered view. He sacrificed himself for you. And when you think about the spousal love of God and the kind of spouse he is to us, how can we not do that to our our spouses as well, our husbands and our wives as well? God wants us. (laughs) One of my friends once said, I want to write a book called I Love Jesus But I Hate His Wife. And what he meant by that is the church is always referred to as the bride of Christ. And he's like, the church is so ugly. But you know what? Jesus is in the business of beautifying his bride, you and me. And similarly, husbands, your number one job for your wife is not the American dream. Many people have achieved the American dream, and their marriages have been a nightmare. Husbands, your number one job is to make your wife look more like Jesus. Wives, your number one job is to make your husbands look more like Jesus. Who cares about everything else? This is the number one thing, not number two, not raising the kids that go to private school, not getting the car, not getting the white pick. Your number one job is to make your spouse look more and more like Jesus, just the way that he is doing for the church Himself, I realize that we all use hot buzzwords when we're dating like chemistry, compatibility, and those words. But the key to a healthy marriage is not finding someone compatible, but the key to a healthy marriage is how you deal with your incompatibilities. When two sinners say, I do, of course there's gonna be conflict. So I am not interested in whether you both like hay dramas or you like rock climbing. I'm more interested in how you deal with your fights. Are you quick to forgive? Do you hold grudges? Like that's the stuff, how you deal with your incompatibilities that gives you a healthier marriage that that doesn't just survive, but actually thrives. A healthy marriage, when two sinners are together, a healthy marriage then are two forgivers that are together as well. And so as you think about your marriage, think of it, think of it like a garden. Um, you, so I, I have this plant. J- Jason's here somewhere on my left. Um, Jason gave me this big plant, and it has to be watered um, every week and a half, two weeks. It's, it's turned into like a jungle now. So, but he was like, he, he was like, you have to put it in the bathtub so it's like really, really soaked and then it can drain. So like every two weeks, I like, I'm doing a CrossFit competition where I'm like lugging this plant into the bathtub so it can be watered. But the reason why I do this is because if I ignore this plant, I even put on my G-Cal before I travel just so I don't forget and it dies. But if I forget to water this plant, it's going to die. What if we treated our marriages like a garden, so that foxes don't come in like temptations, so that weeds don't grow up, but we pay attention to our garden. We water it. We tend to it. We we don't just do it once, but we tend to it every single day. And sometimes that looks like not just assessing what we look like, but what our spouse looks like sometimes but we just miss it. And I'll close with this quote from Melissa Edgington. It's long, but stay with me. She writes this, and then it hit me. What has romanced me this year isn't flowers or nights out or even the beautiful diamond ring that my husband spurs on at Christmas, although I never one to discourage or turn down diamonds. What has made me feel cared for this year is something that goes much deeper than gifts. The truth is that while I was searching for some grand romantic gesture, I realized that one reason that I'm truly happy and feel loved and adored by my husband is that I decided years ago to try not to miss what's right in front of me every day. Like the way he reaches over and grabs my hand when he's driving. The way that he saves the last of the whipped cream for me. Or the way he picks up my favorite drink when he's at the grocery store, the way he holds me close at night and makes me laugh even though I'm half asleep, the way he always asks if I'm getting sick when I clear my throat, the way he tells me that things aren't as fun when I'm not there, or the way he overlooks it when I snap at him for no reason. Those are a few of the little things that actually end up being big things in the end. And that doesn't even include all of the other ways that He loves me, like working hard for our family, pointing me to Christ every day, adoring our kids, trying to keep His mind and His heart pure, spurring me on to follow my dreams, helping me see my own gifts from God. Someday, when I'm sitting in a rocking chair, looking back over our life together... It won't be the big trips or the diamond rings that I remember most. It'll be all the little things, the small gestures that he makes every day to communicate how much he loves me. If you're searching for romance in your marriage, chances are you're ignoring the most romantic things about your life. Stop and think about it and appreciate all of the little ways that you are being romanced every day. I promise it'll make marriage more fun and meaningful if you do. Be grateful for what you have and stop pining for a version of marriage that Hollywood or K-dramas dreamed up. Let's pray. Father, we want to first look to you Uh, And our marriage with you, because ultimately our earthly marriages are a gift that you have given to us to ultimately point to the marriage union and relationship that we have with you. Help us to prioritize this marriage first. Help us to be in vertically healthier places. Help us to have the approach in all of our relationships, not just marriage, where we not have a me-centered mindset but a you-centered mindset, just as Jesus had for us. In your name I pray, amen.